0: You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com.
1: Good evening, and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. What a special, special night we have with such a special guest uh just get ready to learn an incredible amount tonight and want to go buy a book immediately if you have not already read the book that we're going to talk about tonight with its unbelievable author. Um, Before I introduce our outstanding guest from London this evening, I'm going to quickly just tell you what you got yourself into. My name is Kathleen Smith, and welcome to Morph Moments and to the world of Morph A former prosecutor many, many years ago, I stopped to raise kids, couldn't go back, couldn't figure out what to do. So I started to travel the country to interview women who had gone through what I was going through, figured it out, found what to do next, done it, and in turn, paid it forward and shared their stories with others who were looking to do the same, giving them a library of opportunities, steps to take, most importantly, I think, what not to take, and just contacts and connections that you sort of lose when you're sitting at home for a while. Um, And uh, to be clear, morphom is not just for moms. A misnomer, because that's what it was named when I began this eight years ago. It's for women, really anybody, but women sharing their stories and helping and supporting others and hopefully starting this community so we can all kind of get to where we want to be, figure out our next step. Now, speaking about next steps, and without further ado, um, what an amazing guest, as I mentioned tonight. Anita Anand is an award-winning broadcast journalist. She currently hosts the BBC radio show, For's Any Answer. Her writing has appeared in the Guardian, Indian Today, India Today rather, and the Asian Age. She's the author of two former books, and most recently, just I think Anita released, um, which is incredibly exciting. The Patient Assassin, a true, uh, excuse me, the Patient Assassin, a true tale of massacre, revenge, and India's quest for independence. This is a true story based on, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Anita uh, Udam Singh was the legendary survivor of the 1919 massacre, where British military were said to have massacred uh, over a 1,000, I think, unarmed citizens, and this was based upon um, a, a, um, a non-violent protest to the British colonization in India at the time. So, Anita, I, I'm thrilled to have you, and I hope I did the proper introduction, and welcome, welcome.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It was a very generous introduction, and you, you totally got it right. Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: Um, first of all, just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you sort of went from journal or, or currently still continue to do journalism, but also writing. And this is your third book, if I'm correct.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, since this is a, a Morph Mom show, I can uh, let you into a little secret. Some sort of the writing uh, happened by accident and because I was on maternity leave at the time. So I would think, programs at the time two daily programs a television program and a radio program every day they were very high profile they were a little bit relentless and then i was pregnant and uh, from going sort of from 0 to 60 suddenly being on maternity leave um and having a tiny baby you just didn't want to do things that would wake up the baby and so i started reading everything i could get my hands on you know i just wanted things to be quiet so the baby would sleep and um it was it was just a, a, a magazine that came through my door one day. Uh I had a photo that I didn't understand. My very sleep-deprived brain couldn't make sense <laughs> of it. It was a, a suffragette. It was a black-and-white picture. It, was, it All it said was suffragette selling newspaper outside Hampton Court Palace. And for some reason, um, my, I, my hand just wouldn't turn the page because I thought, she looks Indian, and I don't understand it. She's dressed like an Edwardian lady. She's wearing furs. She's got this suffragette poster, and she looks Indian. And I'm a political journalist. I have been for years. I'm of Indian extraction. How do I not know about this? So I, at first I thought, okay, well, this is good. I'll, I'll get a book out about her. And this was my first foray into writing. And I couldn't find one because this woman was a complete mystery. And then I sort of started scratching the surface while I was at home with my little infant son, who's now nine years old. And I started digging, and I found more and more about this Extraordinary woman who turns out to be an Indian princess, who lived at Hampton Court Palace with Queen Victoria's goddaughter, and was a battling suffragette for women's rights, and so, you know, I ended up thinking, gosh, I didn't know about her, now I want the world to know about her, and so that became my first book, so you're right, I have three books along now, and uh, this, this, this book is a, a much darker time in history, um, with the suffragettes, you know, these were women who pulled together and changed the world. Uh, With The Patient Assassin, this starts from a hideous act in 1919, which leads to a 20-year obsession, which leads to yet more bloodshed. And, you know, I've been told it reads like a thriller, and that if I would have presented this story to a a fiction editor, they would have said, go away and write something more believable. But (laughs) it's true, and the truth is stranger than fiction. So
1: (laughs) let me back up a little bit. You never, did you dream about writing, or had you thought about this? prior to be at home on maternity leave? I no, in the no, dowry. I mean, I'm, ma- I'm, I'm married to a writer, and so,
0: you know, it, I know how hard it is. A friend of mine who is also an author, I was moaning about, um, we, we writers, we moan a lot, especially to each other, <laughs> and I was having a complete moan fest, and he said, you know what, and he said, the thing is, writing a book is a lot like reading a book, except the book is trying to kill you. And that is absolutely true. And I, I saw, I saw with my husband how hard it was. And you know, he really, he worked really hard. And I thought, God, I never want to do this. Um, except when you've got a story that you just absolutely, desperately want to share with people, you end up writing a book. And and, it, and it's a little bit like childbirth. You sort of write it, you go through this sort of painful of delivery, and then it's out in the world, and you get to talk to charming people like you, Kathleen, and then you forget. <laughs> And then you're at the next one, you know, so, yeah, I'm, I'm three books and two children down the line, so there we are.
1: <laughs> and I feel, so, and, and by the way, it is my privilege to speak with you, so I'm thrilled that you have that time on maternity leave to tell the story, because here we are today. Um. So your books, and I'm not, the second one is just true as well as the first two, are based on... Uh, they're historical fiction. I mean, I'm sorry. They're, they're they're factual. They're true stories. Yes, they are. Yeah. And I don't the have the one? I don't
0: have the imagination for fiction. <laughs> the second one is about the, the second one is about the world's most cursed diamond, um, which because uh, because I, I I'm I'm born and brought up in Great Britain, but my parents were from India, and I have a very sort of keen sense of my history and heritage. And so you know, I keep circling back to that relationship between Britain and India, um, which you know, have been good, good, bad, and ugly in the past. And the second book was about the Koh-I-Noor Diamond, which now sits in a crown in the Tower of London, but was wow. once this enormous fabled gem in India, which was said to have supernatural powers. Um, and it it now, you know, it's, it, it went through such a brutal, bloody history, you know, from from ground to crown. I, I wrote it with a, a historian called William Dalrymple. we sort of the story in half so william does the early history and i do it from when the Sikh empire had it and it came to great britain to be in the tower of london through queen victoria's hands and and here it is you know if you if you ever do travel to the tower of london which is one of our great tourist attractions you will see it glinting in the queen consort's crown so if if charles ever does become king camilla has to decide whether she's going to wear this cursed diamond in her crown or not really the story of the diamond
1: it's um, fascinating Yes. Yeah. So, from Diamonds, and now to your most recent story, which is just this, this is the story itself, is it's fascinating how, and we, we began to, to speak about this, and for those of you who just joined us, we're speaking with Anita Anand about her most recent book of three, by the way, who is also an award-winning journalist, um, and a mother, um, very busy, uh, The Patient Assassin, A True Tale of Massacre, Revenge, and India's Quest for Independence. And again, it's a true story based on Udam Singh. But when I was reading about it and they said it was almost like he was rumored to be this mi- mythical creature as the tale, you know, as, as the story was told and around the world. And it got, he became larger than life. And I read somewhere that at one point um, some believed that he'd actually risen from the dead and vowed revenge on those who had begun the massacre. And when you began to do the research about this, did you see a lot of that? Oh, there. Were, I mean, there was
0: all sorts of stuff that um, was just fantasy uh, written about this. So, so just to take you back, so to fill in some of the gaps um, for people who don't know, it, 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 in India, there is a part in the north, in the northern part of India, um, which is where my family comes from originally. It's called Punjab. It's called the Land of the Five Rivers, and it is the most fertile part of India. It's called the Breadbasket of India. So it's, it's a lot of farming land but also very, very wealthy historically. It's the place where this cone or diamond came from as well. It used to have enormous gemstones. Um, And what happens here is that the British, who are in charge at that time, you know, the the Raj, the jewel and the crown of of the British Empire is India. They say, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire and India is the jewel and the crown. And during the 1900s, there is a, a an odd thing happening where Britain is, is tightening its grip on India. So it's it's charging more, levying more money from the people there. World War One has come and gone, and and a lot of Indian soldiers you know, have been sent over to fight in the trenches of France. It, it, Punjab sends more young men than any other province in India in 1915 and so this is, a, this is a place that's given blood and coins for the British Empire and they've done it thinking that you know if their boys come back and they've given this supreme sacrifice they've bled in the trenches they've cried in the trenches they've, they've been in the mud in the trenches with the British the British if they are victorious will be grateful and the Indians will have some kind of say in running their own country they don't want to run it completely men like Gandhi who you may have heard of you know they—they're not asking the British to leave. They're not trying to take control of the country. They're just right. saying share power. Uh, you, you guys will know this better than anyone. No taxation without representation. You guys said it mm. tipped a whole bunch of tea into into the Boston Harbor. <laughs> the Indians were starting to say this with more volume in in the, in the <laughs> 1900s. But instead, these these boys come home and they face even more draconian rule. The the noose is tightening around India. So the, the taxes are going up. Anybody who's critical of the British is thrown into prison and will not face trial or know what their charges are, but they can just be deprived of their liberty. And you know, India starts to chafe, and so Gandhi starts to step up his campaign of non, you know, non-violent resistance, saying, okay, you know, if they're going to be like this, we are going to show we have numbers. We are three hundred million. We're being governed by twelve thousand people of the Indian civil service. We can simply say, no, we're not going to do this anymore, and, and we're going to make it really difficult. The British in kind respond by cracking down even more violently. So in 1919, when you know, the war is over, it's just starting for India in many ways. And a brigadier general called Reginald Dyer is sent to this city called Amritsar in Punjab in the north of India, it's famous for the Golden Temple, which you might have seen pictures of. It's, it's a beautiful building surrounded by very peaceful water, and it's got these glistening golden domes. It is a very stunning place. And it's the most holy shrine to the Sikhs, a, a, sex, a, a religion in India. And Brigadier General Dyer has heard that despite the fact he arrived 24 hours before and sent out a drum proclamation which which means just that he sent drummers around the city banging a drum saying you will not meet and you will not have political meetings and they are now forbidden you know in in a town as noisy as Mm amritsa you know we call it the city of pros because people don't talk to each other they just yell at each other (laughs) it's very (laughs) difficult to understand how that message could have got to everybody so there is a meeting that is planned in a place called jennyamalabag which means It means the Garden of Jalla, but it's not a garden, really. It's the size of four soccer pitches. It's flat, it's dusty, and it's surrounded by tenement buildings. So it's completely hemmed in. There's one entrance, which is very, very narrow, and it's just wide enough to allow three people to walk in abreast. No no wider than that. And this man, Brigadier General Dyer, who has arrived in Amritsar, doesn't know the city, but has decided that these people have defied him. If there's a meeting going on, he's going to teach them a lesson. What he doesn't take into account is that this is also the biggest festival of the year. It's the Saki, which is the, the harvest festival, and this is the land of farming. And this is the, the city of the Golden Temple. So thousands of people have poured into this city on this day to give thanks for the Golden Temple, and many, many of them are in this Recreation grounds to to get away from you know the thronging city and just have a break and have picnics. So there are at the time Reginald Dyer Dyer drives his armed convoy to this garden. There are twenty thousand men, women, and children, innocent men, women, and children, in this garden. Wow! Unarmed, how many innocent men, women, and children in this garden?
1: Out of the twenty thousand, how many would have been involved in the civil you know the civil disobedience um, event going on? Uh, 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 a minority
0: would have been yeah. involved in this.
1: So, you know, there was,
0: a, there was a political meeting going on, but most people were just there to get out of the mess of the city. So there was a platform erected near the entrance to this garden, and there were people gathered around to hear the speeches. You know, there were, there were hundreds who were there to hear the speeches, but there were also hundreds and hundreds of people who had nothing to do with the, the political speech. And anyway, even those who were there to attend the political speech These were Gandhian supporters, these were supporters of Gandhi, who was non-violent. So they were talking about non-violent resistance. Um, When Dyer drives to the entrance, he's irritated because it's too narrow for his cars to go in. And the reason he would later explain that he was irritated is that there were machine guns on the vehicles. And if he would have been able to get them in, he would have used those as well. But instead, he only had 50 riflemen. He tells them to quick march into the garden he tells them to stand on the raised north bank and without issuing a single order to disperse to the crowds who are inside he tells them to open fire and fire and fire and they do they shoot for 10 sustained minutes at the thickest parts of the crowd so people are running and screaming they're trying to get over the walls they can't bodies are piling up in pyramids there's one tree in the middle of the garden people are trying to get sheltered behind this from the bullets they can't so there's flesh and splinters flying there's a well in the middle of the garden people are throwing their loved ones in to try and get away from the bullets so they sort of break and suffocate inside this well and he orders his men to fire 1,650 bullets mostly at chest and head height at these innocent men women and children um the numbers of dead this is very fiercely disputed because the british at the time who were trying to underplay what had happened when when the horror of what had happened started to filter out, said it was around 379 people had been killed. The Indians put it at over 1,000. And to compound the misery of the people who were there, what this man Dyer does is he leaves as suddenly as he arrives. He doesn't allow any medical aid to come into the garden. He then declares a curfew so people can't get to their loved ones that night. It is a long night of bleeding for the people who are trapped in that garden. Many, many die. They bleed out into the dust. And I mean, the reason I have a, a real sort of—it's been a wrestle to write this—and it's a book that I, you know, picked up and put down for about ten years, thinking, "No, I'm really not ready to do it." Except my, my grandfather was in the garden that day, oh and my God. by some, yeah, bizarre quirk of fate, he left minutes before the firing started. He was—he was a kid, so he was very typical of a lot of people in the garden that day. He wasn't from Amritsar, he was from Kalabagh up in the mountains. He'd come to the city because of the festival, because he was there to do business. You know, it's a good time to pray, but it's also the time to do business when everybody is there. And he was there to buy scrap metal, old used sewing machines. He had two friends and he said, look, just sit here and could you just, you know, watch my picnic? Don't eat my food, I'll be right back, I won't be long. Um, And he leaves and he passed Dyer's column in the street. And the first he knows of what's happened is he's in the market and wailing is just washing over the market. And he rushes to try and find out what happened to his friends but he's shouted off the street by soldiers. And he waits and he has to wait this long, long night till morning to find out that both of them are dead. And he lives oh with Survivor's guilt. Yeah, it's it's it crushed him. You know, today we would call it PTSD but it didn't have a yeah. name in those days. He 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 went blind quite early in life, and uh, whenever anybody tried to sympathize with him, he would just roar with anger at them, saying, do not pity me, you know, God spared me that day, it's only right he took the light from my eyes. So, you know, there, there there's a personal connection there. But there was another young man who was a similar age to my grandfather, a teenager, another sort of lanky teenager, and this one who had actually served with the British in, in, in the war and come back, one of those people who expected better and got worse. Yeah. And the legend has it that this man, Udan Singh, who you mentioned, who is an orphan, who is low caste, he's lost his parents by the age of five. He's been brought up in an, in an orphanage in Amritsar by devout Sikhs. And, you know, Amritsar is his parent, this city is his only parent. And he is said to be in the garden, and as legend has it, he's trapped. He's wounded, and he's trapped that long horror of a night. And he listens as the screaming gets quieter and quieter and quieter till morning when there's just whimpering and bleeding. And the first light hits the ground and he takes a scoop of blood-soaked earth and he rubs it against his forehead and he says, you know, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I'm going to kill the men who did this with as little mercy as they've shown my people. And he is the patient assassin and this is his story. And it's 20 years that he transforms himself from this... This orphan who has nothing, who is also low caste, you know, there's a crushing caste system in India, and he's he's born the lowest caste, so he's a man completely without agency and power, and how he transforms himself until 20 years later, he can walk into a hall in London, in Westminster, in the heart of the Raj, and enact his revenge in an operatic style.
1: This story is unbelievable. Can I go back to, do you remember when your grandfather first told you this story or when you first learned of your grandfather's involvement that day? Well, you see, my grandfather
0: very, very sadly died before I was born. My father was his youngest son by some stretch. But my father, um, being his youngest son, was kind of the closest to him. and, And I grew up very close to both my dad and his two elder brothers. And they made him, you know, come to life and they told me what a remote, quiet figure he had been yeah. and how he would talk this way. And so, you know, it is, it is our story. It's kind of wound in our DNA, this, this story. Yeah. And I grew up sort of fearing these two names, which are associated with the massacre. The name of the Brigadier General, whose name is Dyer, and the name of the Lieutenant Governor of Punjab, who was in charge at the time, who created this atmosphere where a massacre like this could happen. Who spent the rest of his life justifying the massacre, saying that it was the right thing to happen and that it was the thing that saved the empire, was a man called Michael O'Dwyer, Sir Michael as I call him in the book. And, uh, you know, these these were men who kind of scared me in childhood. They were stuff of, you know, the boogeymen of nightmares. I knew about them. And so to sort of try and sit down and write this book, I I don't believe anybody is a comic book villain or two-dimensional. I really had to try and understand their motivations as much as them saying the, the nemesis, the Avenger. Right. And so I had to understand them as people, you know, I had to try and get under their skin. And to do that, I just had to stop thinking of them as Dyer and O'Dwyer, and I had to think of them as, as the Brigadier General preferred to be known as Rex, so I started thinking about him as Rex, and, and that's how I refer to him in the book. And, and Michael, who's an Irish Catholic from Tipperary, who, you know, this, this very bright little lad who's growing up in... The, the leftovers of the Irish famine where all his other fellow Catholics hate the British and yet his father is different and hates the Nationalists. You know, I had to try and understand him growing up and why he was able you know, to live with himself, to create this atmosphere and then live with himself afterwards. You know, as he says, in his own words, he never loses a night's sleep over this in his life. Whereas he, the Brigadier General who ordered the men to fire is tortured by it.
1: Did you in retrospect that this is almost somewhat therapeutic writing it having grown up with the story and your family's involvement and how much just even thinking back like what you said today would have been PTSD that he was going through did you find it somewhat therapeutic writing about it
0: what was what was uh, no I mean it was hard writing about it it was hard going through um, boxes of testimony of people who were in the garden <laughs> who suffered through that night. You know, horrible, awful stories, and there are many in the book, but, you know, one that springs to mind is that this, this woman whose husband has been shot, and she's there desperately trying to pull him out of out of this pool of blood and just get him somewhere drier. And uh, she has to sit with him all night listening to a, a, a young boy nearby who's crying out for his parents and crying out for water. And she can't give him a dead, she has no water until he grows silent. And she has to sit there all night with a stick, keeping the dogs away from her husband. So, you know, there, there, there are, I mean, it was it was just horrific to think of that and think mm. that it is dumb luck in a matter of minutes that separated us being here. And, you know, I, I feel it most yeah. keenly when I look at my own children and think, you know, you may not have been here had that man, you know, my grandfather not left minutes before, and so that's made me sort of think about dumb luck and the, um, you know, fickleness of fate. And also, yeah. you know, the, the, the other weird thing is how we are all sort of interconnected. I married my husband, that, and it was only years until I married I told him this story about my grandfather and that I thought, you know, that what, what he had had was some form of PTSD that he lived with. And he said, this is so weird because my great-uncle lived with the assassin who, who eventually anyone about, but I was like, you're joking of all the people in all the world I could have met and married, you are joking. And then he told me this whole story about uh, you know, his his great uncle who had come to Britain in the nineteen thirties and knew this flamboyant creature called Urban Singh, who then goes on to become notorious as the man who takes revenge for this, this horrible act. So, you know, there was there was symmetry in all of that and a weirdness and also then it became a legacy, you know, that I wanted tell the story for my kids but also for Britain and for India, you know, here in Britain there is an amnesia about what the empire was you know, Mm -hmm. people prefer to think about it in these beautiful sepia tones or, you know it's about Maharajas and polo matches and tiger hunts and it's all very pith helmets and how how wonderful, you know, the heroic the, the Raj was against this backdrop where Indians are just scenery whereas actually the truth you know, it, there is darkness in this story and I just happen to think very sincerely that if you don't recognise history, if you don't learn from history, you're cursed to make the same mistakes again and again. So, it, you know, if anything, it's been, um, I think it's been useful to write this story and show people and say, this is our collective history and it wasn't so long ago. You know, we've just commemorated the 100th anniversary of World War I. We just had marches everywhere and we wear poppies and, you know, we know that this is not so long ago and yet this is also a hundred years ago and we don't remember and that can't be right.
1: You, and you said you were able to find um, in your research that Sir Michael, I think it was, had no true regret or, or didn't, didn't, dis- didn't display any type of regret. How were you able to find, like, did they interview him or what did you find about him? Well, he, you know, the, he wrote um,
0: uh, his own biography, uh, India as I Knew It, where he he laid it out as a justification of, of you know the way he ruled and why he ruled that way and why the Indians needed it. You know, he he categorised. he frees like it. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he yeah. talks
1: he,
0: he talks about you know that that th- there is an iron grip that is needed. That he criticises the soft men of Westminster who are giving. Poisonous men like Gandhi more power than they deserve. Um, he does speeches about it. You know, he travels around the country. He fights a libel case in in Britain where he he basically the libel case. Somebody, in, an Indian, in fact, um, says that he is responsible for this massacre, and he takes him to court. And he takes him to a, such as you know, it is a very odd court where the judge is so clearly on his side. The judge is doing a better job of of prosecuting the case on his own side is in this libel case. And and he uses that opportunity as well to again and again say, look, this act saved a mutiny. Had this action not been taken in that garden that day, India would have been lost. And if India was lost, the empire would have followed. So he had never one second of doubt about what had been done in his name and, you know, that it was the right thing to do. In contrast Rex, the Brigadier General, and I write about this sort of extensively in the book as well, you know, that, and this is the wonderful thing about being a historian. You're like a detective. It is, it is to me, it's like the, the essence of journalism. You know, In journalism, you interview people who are alive. In history, you, inter- you, you interrogate sources in, right. in boxes. You know, the archives whisper to you, and you have to follow the whispering. But with Rex Dyer, he suffered terribly after he came back. Um, you know, he was, he was the one who was, I won't say scapegoated, but he was made the figurehead for this and he didn't help himself because he was such a straight talker and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't overly smart and when he was called before an inquiry, he was fiery, he said, yeah, I, I fired on them, I intended to fire on them, no matter what they were doing, yes, I knew they were civilians and I did it to teach him a lesson and so that landed him in a lot of hot water and uh, he, you know, was forced to resign his army commission. He never served a day in prison. And in fact, the British people held him as such a hero, they raised £26,000 for him, which was a <laughs> fortune in those days. And referred to him as the saviour of India. You know, had he chosen to, he could have dined off what he did for the rest of his life. But he doesn't. He goes into hiding. He goes into seclusion. He never wants to talk about what happened In Punjab that day, and and he suffers his health goes off a cliff, and uh, I found all these sort of amazing sources about what how much he declined, including one account from in the 1920s, I think 1921, so just two years after the massacre, where an Indian, an Anglophile Indian, so he he loves everything about Britain. This this man Kripalani, he's written quite a dull memoir, but this thing just leaps out of the, the pages at me. Where he says, you know, he was a student. He was at Oxford. He's sitting down having a cup of tea with his British friends in the Oxford Union, and the subject of the massacre comes up, and he's in a rage about it. And he just notices out the corners of the corner of his eye that this elderly man is is leaning in and listening intently, and he just carries on. He thinks no more about it, and then the man gets up and walks over and says, "Look, okay, I just sorry. I'm listening to your conversation, but what do you what do you make of dire? and Kripalani flies into this even more intense rage and says, you know, he was a monster, it is ridiculous that he is free, he should have been hanged for what he did. And the man just looks utterly broken and says, I am that unfortunate man, and limps off. And and Kripalani says, God, and that's when I recognize, you know, every picture I'd seen in the newspapers of him, he was in full-dress uniform, and here he was in musty, you know, in civilian clothes, and he looked like a shambling old man. And on his deathbed, you know, his, his, his daughter-in-law uh, described to um, a, 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 another journalist and, and author that, you know, there's an electrical storm on the night that Rex Dyer is lying in his bed at 1927. He's so, he's given up on life. He's just withdrawn completely. The lightning storm has knocked out all the lights in the Dyer house. They're living now in the depths of the countryside because his wife wants to hide him away from any public scrutiny. He can't bear it. And Phyllis, his daughter-in-law, is sitting at his bedside saying, don't worry, it will get better. And she means the lights. And he just looks at her and holds her hand and says, I don't want it to get better. Some people say I did right. Some people say I did wrong. I want to meet my maker now and find out. So he's tortured on a rack by what he did. But Michael O'Dwyer, the man who ultimately, Udden Singh, fixes in his crosshairs and becomes utterly obsessed with for 20 years, this man has no regret at all.
1: Uh, and that may be the answer to my question. But so when you set out to do this, and you knew the you know the basic overall story, but when you were saying that the boxes whisper to you, and the ghosts whisper and they lead you in different directions, um, I'm sure this was probably one of them. Like I said, but is there another thing that just really shocked you, or really surprised you, and almost kept you going, like writing all night when you when you discovered it? Oh yeah, I mean I, I you know. I,
0: there, there were so many things. There were a lot of the, the papers. The British were, were, were brilliant at, you know, the dark arts, as we now call them, when it when it comes to um, colonial governance and, and, and the things that they did. But they were also brilliant at bureaucracy. So they kept detailed notes about the things that they did. But they were also very good at, at, at trying to hide the notes. So a lot of these papers were meant to be hidden in perpetuity. So they were either marked top secret or never to be released. And so, you know, when I started going through things at the National Archive, when I first toyed with the idea of doing this, the papers were not available. And then it's sort of a relentless barrage of what we call freedom of information requests. Not, not you know, there was a, a very wonderful man who um, has you know been spearheading this campaign to get these papers released from the government. Um, he got a whole slew of them released a few years ago. And, and, and some of the papers I only got out, you know, in 2016. Mm-hmm. And they were never meant to light a day. So, you know, you still he drops off their radar. They they underestimate him. People spend that you know, all of them's life, everybody's all, only underestimated him. And it's only when, you know, he does this act, they realize, MI5 realized they had him on their radar. Special Branch, the police, Scotland Yard, they realized they had him on their radar. The IPI, Indian Police Intelligence, realized they had him on the radar. And all of these three organizations who are meant to be the most powerful in the realm, at a time of war in 1940, They have all dropped the ball collectively. And so at this time of heightened security with Britain, you know, the world at war, this man is able to calmly walk into a hall in Westminster and put two bullets through the heart of the man he has hated all his life.
1: Oh, my God. And this was, he had a bunch of, and and when I was reading about this when he was in America, he had spent time doing basically everything, from prison to meeting with, I think, Anyone, a Russian communist, is that true? And sort of uh, uh, really covering the gamut of groups in America when he was there. Yeah, I mean, America is his first
0: um, great stepping stone to getting to this man, Sir Michael. So, you know, in India, he's still the lowest of the low, and he's still sort of crushed by the caste system, and nobody will take him very seriously. So first he travels to Africa because he needs to feed himself and he needs to find work. So he works on this... Uh, it's called the Lunatic Line. It's the, the British are building a railway. They loved building railways wherever they went. And it's a railway that stretches from Kenya to Uganda, what is now present-day Uganda. And there he meets anti-colonials, and he say, you know what, you really need to go to San Francisco because that is the hub of resistance these days. So Michael has chased out all of the the violent militants from Punjab. You know, he, he arrests them, hangs them, and, and, you know, then maybe tries them, but, you know, they, they, he's... They, they are now operating out of, largely out of Stockton and, and Berkeley, um, you know, around about the university campus. So why don't you just go there and see if they can make use of you because you could be useful. And he does, he travels over, he, he gets across from El Paso, he, he, you know, illegally crosses over. He then, first of all, goes to Claremont, which is just, doesn't exist really very much at the time. It's just starting to build up as this university town. And he sees this town of two halves, and he starts working for this this militant gutter organization. They're called the Guthers, and they are sworn to the violent overthrow of the British. Uh, and they have a lot of sympathy from America, you know, which is, which knows what it is to throw off British rule. Um, so, you know, they have they have some support where they are. And he learns in Claremont, you know, there are two halves. There's the poor side of the Mexican fruit pickers, you know, because some cases have just arrived in Claremont at the same time. And so he can disappear into this brown skin side, and then he can disappear into the white side because he learns how to dress in western dress, to walk with a straight back, to speak English with confidence. Wow. And there, you know, he just he spends some years in America learning to be a chameleon. Um, he he works, in, uh, you know, on the car plants at Ford. He works. For Hudson, the the airplane companies, where you know they won't employ Indians, so he learns to be somebody else. He learns to be whoever he needs to be. He becomes Frank Brazil, a Puerto Rican, and he all the time he's sort of doing these little jobs for the others, who are then introducing him to other people who hate the British. And he is living his life by my enemy's enemy is my friend. So whoever can teach him, this is you know whether it's the communists in Moscow, and he travels to Russia, he travels to Eastern Europe, or it's anarchists in Europe, or it's uh, you know, anyone in America who can help him, you know, the, he gets a lot of help from an Italian in, in, in Little Italy in New York. So, you know, all of these people are, are his university. And the thing in America, America almost also blows him off course because America is a place where anybody can dream the American dream. You know, they, anyone can make themselves something. And America is a country without caste. So at the time Udham Singh is in America, there is a reform school boy, who is worshipped by Ivy League boys as much as the boys working on the Ford plant, and is Babe Ruth, you know, who smashes through cars. You know, somebody who came from nothing and is a god. And so, you know, the thing is, seeing all of this, he falls in love with a, a Mexican woman called Lupe. He has children with her, and he has money in his pocket, and you know, he he could have happiness for the first time. In his life, this poor, beleaguered orphan who's had nothing but tragedy in his life could have happiness. But like the Princess of the Pea, this promise of vengeance, this vow that he took, just keeps him awake. And he has to do it. And that's why, you know, he jettisons his wife, his family. And he ends up with a pattern of behavior. You know, he's a lot like Tom Ripley, um, who, you know, just takes, takes, takes. Because he's got something bigger in mind, and in the Singh's case, it is just vengeance. It is revenge for what happened.
1: Did he ever journal? I really able to find any of his writings, or was it primarily others who wrote about encounters with him, and, you know, this, this, this larger-than-life character, almost like the, you know, what was the movie Catch Me If You Can, and changing, constantly changing characters and names and what he does? So he, it,
0: it is, a lot of it is from people who knew him because he was such an enormously charismatic character. He was also a really unusual character because he was, he had such charm that even though he's supposedly meant to be flying under the radar, um, he can't help himself. He's a show off by nature. he does <laughs> these extraordinary things. Like he has numerous women who, who are attracted to him of, of different colours. He, when he gets to Britain, which he does in the 1930s, Instead of, you know, he, he he kind of plugs into this network of, of peddlers, Indian peddlers who've come over, their first wave of immigration. And each family that he lives with, or each household that he lives with, think, thinks that that's their own, their only residence. And yet he's maintaining <laughs> about nine residents at the same time. Not only that, but he's taking roles in movies as an extra. So, you know, there's this very famous movie called Elephant Boy, starring a, a guy called Sabu, which, you know, is Denham Studios are largely, it's largely filmed in India, but all the extra scenes, they film in in Denham, in, you know, in, in, just outside London, and so, you know, he's, he's there in the crowd scenes, so, you know, hardly being, you know, completely invisible, but being invisible in plain sight, so, you know, so there were a lot of accounts of him, which, you know, I was very lucky to have. The British also, you know, remember, they, they were watching him for ages, his, his weird comings and goings out of Eastern Europe and turning up and suddenly being in Germany, you know, at a time when, you know, this is the run-up to World War II. What the hell is he doing in Hitler's Germany? Um, you know, Hitler's Germany that believes that these are, you know, they are the master race, and anyone else, particularly anyone, with a different kind of skin is so inferior. What are they doing with him? Um, and so, you know, they, they all kind of have little bits of the puzzle. But then also he was arrested in, in, in the 1920s, the gun running, and there is, you know, an interrogation report where he's kind of tortured, and a lot of his story from his own mouth is tortured out of him. So you sort of put together all of these pieces, and they're all tiny little intriguing bits, and when they start fitting together, and they start corroborating each other, you think, my God, right now I actually have got a picture, I can see, I can see you, I see you right there, I've got you, you know, and that's really exciting.
1: Did you have to travel for the research, especially for Urams were we like did you have to go to the different countries yeah I traveled a lot I did travel a
0: lot so um
1: to get a sense
0: of uh Nahor, which is where Sir Michael was based I did travel to Lahore a couple of times I traveled to India to his hometown where he was born uh and you know got a real sense of, of him there and there were people who said Oh actually you know what my great grandfather had a diary, I think, let me try and find it for you, because yeah, he talked about him in that, and so you'd find these extraordinary handwritten books which talked about them and corroborated other things, which then, you know, I found in the National Archive here in London, Um, you know, things that corroborated stuff from police reports, Uh, you know, other local Punjabi historians, you know, I went and talked to them, and I, you know, those who had died and who did work, you know, soon after and then had been hanged, you know, there there were bits and pieces that they also had in their collection. So uh went to Jolumbo which, you know, has a lot a great repository of, of gather information. Went to San Francisco. You know, I, I travelled a lot for a for a number of years actually just putting these pieces together. And every time I thought, okay, you know, I have enough there's another piece would just throw kind of me <laughs> and then I and I'd get involved with doing, you know, this I did the second book instead because I thought, well, actually this is this is really I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And then you know, all kind of happened in the middle, the, the, the book about the diamond, and I like, thought, well, actually, you know, I am ready now, so um, I just need to stop making excuses and sit down and do it.
1: Wow. So would you, I think you mentioned for, would you say it was, the book was about 10 years, including all of the research and the, and the completion? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's sort of like, you know, toying with it, you yeah. of toying with it
0: and, and thinking about it and thinking, no, I'm not going to do it. So I sort of date my books with my children really so yeah just just over nine years I'd say rather than 10 years, years just shy of 10 years so um, yeah that's when I sort of first started thinking that maybe that's what I would do and then thought no I can't write it's too hard look at my husband it's too I, I want to do something much easier I'll just do broadcasting that's much easier <laughs> and then uh, and then you know, you know sort of picking things up and then just putting them in a box really and then over that sort of 10-year cycle and it just, it was, to me, it was like the pea, you know, if it's the princess and the pea again, it, I just couldn't, um, I couldn't leave it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So the actual sort of, you know, intense period, I, I guess, would be about three or four years, but it's been ticking away. And, you know, don't forget, this is because it's family history as well, so it's even longer than that, right. you know, uh, talking to uncles, talking to family members, this is stuff that's been going on since, you know, I was a child, so, uh, you know, that part of the story where, you know, I felt we had an intimate involvement. That, that goes back even longer. But actually interrogating sources and, 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 you know, overturning things at the National Archives, ah, that's been, you know, in the last few years. And, and also the papers weren't available before that. You know, so even if,
1: oh, actually
0: true. just before have backed off. Yeah, yeah, they weren't, they wouldn't have been there. They just wouldn't have been there. You know, so people have tried before, but they've, they've had to fill in these enormous gaps because they didn't have any papers. Only, you know, as I say, some of the papers only released in 2016, and I'm not even sure that we've
1: got all of them yet. Wow. So this this story is so amazing. As you said, if it wasn't true, it's almost unbelievable how, unbelie- how crazy it is. Would you ever, or are there thoughts, or possibly this becoming a movie or something? Because I, this story, is, it's amazing a pretty
0: weird thing with this and I, i'm told that it's weird because the, the world of movies is all very very strange but um when you're when you're writing a book the first thing that you do is you write a proposal you write a treatment saying this is my intention to write this i want to write this story and um, it's it's a thing that then you know you your agent will go and say um either this is good, this is bad, or this is horrendous, go and find something else to do. Um, (laughs) And mm, (laughs) I wrote the treatment, and and it was kind of longer than a usual treatment, and my agent just looked at it, and his jaw hit the ground, and he said, God, this is good, this is really, really good. Um, And I said, well, why don't you just see what people think? So this is before I'd written it, so this is just a treatment, and it suddenly went out into the world, and suddenly seven publishers were, were fighting for it, and I thought, God, that's really exciting. And then I got a call from my agent and said, Oh, you know, I've just been waffling it around, um, some film people and there's somebody who wants to option it now. I said, Well, I haven't written it. He <laughs> said, Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, said, well, I haven't even <laughs> yeah, written it. <laughs> so they, you know, the, the, the book was optioned before it was written, uh, or just on wow. the proposal. So, yeah, yeah, um, so we'll see. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big, thing uh, to make it from that point to on a screen, but um, I can just tell you people are working away at it. That's so, um, oh, so
1: exciting. See. I, I can't even imagine how proud your grandfather is, and just so, through all the years he struggled with what he went through, wherever he is right now, that his granddaughter was able to bring the story to life and to bring this honor to everyone involved in that day and some sort of a justice, and I, I, I don't know, I'm sure... He's, that's
0: probably the greatest gift of all. Well, it's really, really lovely you say. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I, I never knew him, so, but I got to know him a little more, just sort of spending time even this, this much time thinking about him and thinking what it was like and talking to my other relatives. And, you know, if anything, it's what it has done is that a lot of my family lives in India and they are scattered all over the place, but it's brought them together, you know, sort of having oh. them Relive and tell their little bits of the story and what their own parents have told them. So that that is something, and they, I know I know they feel it very much. That you know that they, their grandfather is in history as well. These are cousins of mine who are uh, in India. So I know that, I know it means a lot to them. That's good. That's a good thing. But I mean, oh, no. the the biggest thing of all is that you know whenever I've done interviews, and I've done a lot of press in in the UK. it's has an awful lot of interest about in that book, which is great. But without exception, either on air or straight off air, people have said, I never knew. I never knew this happened. And that to me is, is kind of a, a really a thing to be really, really proud of. Because um, I love the fact that I love telling stories people don't know. But this one seems important because it's just so mammoth. It's such a big deal. And the fact that people don't know to me is just weird. You know, we're sitting in London. I'm talking to you from London, which was the epicenter of the empire, and nobody here knows what happened. Yeah. And that can't be right. That's just insane to me.
1: And your children? You said your son is nine. Do are they? Do they know the story? And maybe not. The, the, the most horrific
0: thing. Well, I've got one four-year-old. I've got. Um, and I've got one four-year-old and one
1: nine-and-a-half-year-old
0: and, you, you know, you have to be age-appropriate. So all yeah. the four-year-old knows that mummy just writes books and that's 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 enough, you know, and they're not as interesting as the books that he reads because they haven't got <laughs> pictures in them. <laughs> so, you know, he sort of, you know, he has this benign tolerance for what I do. And the nine-year-old does know, you know, the stories, which i you know, I've told him about his great-grandfather and my, my grandfather and, you know, we, we talk about that and we, you know, and that, but it's just, sort of trying to tell him about the ugliness of the world without making him fearful about the world so you know i, I remember when um, when he was very very little and uh Nelson Mandela died and i was crying because i just was really very moved and I'm, I'm not easy to to shake but when Mandela died that really shook me and um, he, he you know it must have scared him he said why are you crying i said oh a very very great man has died he said why was he great he was, very, he was very young. He must have been about three. I can't remember now when, when that was, but he was little. I know he was little. And um, he said, why? And I said, well, why was he great? I said, because. And you just think, how am I going to tell my little grandson that there's a thing called apartheid or that, you know, there is this, this awful yeah. thing called racism? So I just feel, you know, at one time, you know, there were people who thought that, Little white boys shouldn't play with little brown boys, and then Mandela came and he said it was okay. And he just looked at me like, "What?" <laughs> just like, Well, why did they need him to tell them? That's so stupid. And I just thought, "Yeah, it, you know, it is stupid. You're right, it is stupid. um But but sometimes it needs a, somebody to point that out. And so with this, you know, I've told him what is age appropriate. He knows. He knows that there were bad things that happened. You know, he doesn't know the extent of the horror of, of, of the massacre. Um, you know, but he's just—I think he's just happy that the book is done now. <laughs> he's, just, I mean, he's got you back. <laughs> he's just glad he's not Mummy but I uh, just—I uh, had to promise I wouldn't write for a while because I think you know. He said sometimes you know, even when you're here, you're not here, and I was like, oh god, that's awful, really. Um, and I—I I was writing an email the other morning in bed, and it came in. He's like, oh, you're writing a book. And I was like, I am not. I'm writing an email. Yes, you are. You're <laughs> writing a book. And I said, no, I read Harry, I, I swear, I am not writing a book. I am writing an email. And he just looked at me like this withering nine-year-old. And he
1: I'm God for that. It's a full cut So there we are. <laughs> well, in, in true morphine spirit, Nina, I think that's the struggle that every single person goes through. And thinks, oh, my God, am I not doing the right thing? But then in years to come, when he looks back and has learned, I mean, you've given the world so much, and at his age, he can't realize it yet, that very soon, because time goes way faster than you can believe, all of a sudden, they realize what you've done, and every minute was worth every single thing that you did. And so, and we are so grateful that they will be as well. Oh, that's, well, that's
0: that's very, very kind of you to say, but, you know, you you just do your best and everything is like, uh, you know, people just say, how how did you do it? And, and I, I, I'm i not entirely sure, but I do remember that it feels a lot like uh, juggling jelly, walking on a tightrope over a <laughs> river of fire. Like everything's fine Well it's fine. That's but right. One thing goes wrong and this is not <laughs> going to end well. So, you know, you just every day is like that, I think.
1: But I think, and again, going back to our, like, all the women out there are just listening to your story and relating so much to what you're saying, even about your son coming in and saying, no, 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 you can't go back. But a little bit of jelly can spill. It's okay. And look what you've done. I mean, what you've done has brought something to life. And that as, you, as, as you said, people should know this story. Your children should know this story. We, Our children should know this story. And that's what you've given. You've given a, a gift to everyone. But it will be realized by them soon, the kids. <laughs> I promise. I have a 23-year-old now who's just starting to say, oh, okay. <laughs> it's okay. You oh, really? Way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right, 23. Okay, right. I mean, <laughs> I
0: don't want it to go so fast. you're so cute right now. But um, it's good. I, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to write the circle their 23rd birthday and go, right, it's about time, you two. <laughs> you can tell them my Finally. daughter, Sarah, is 23. It's like, yeah. okay.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: No, and I'm, you guys, said, me and said, this day is the day you all meant to want recognize the <laughs> brilliance of your mother. Right now, happy <laughs> birthday, and now it's all about me.
1: <laughs> that's right. And here's my next book. <laughs> I mean, so sad. I don't want to hang up with you. I absolutely, I've been literally, and I'm not exaggerating, on the edge of my seat as you recounted what happened back then in 1919 I, every single thing that you've said and you've done and your story telling that story is just as compelling, just as compelling. And I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight and sharing this and everybody out there, Anita and Nand. And I mean, I can't even say enough about what you've done. Um, You've got to go out immediately and buy the patient, the patient assassin, a true tale of massacre, revenge, and India's quest for independence. And it's an unbelievable story. But what I think and everyone else is what's most unbelievable is it's true and anita went out and traveled the world and gave us this story but the most important part was gave us a very important time in history that can't be forgotten and i again anita i'm so grateful i hope you come back again and um especially on your son's 23rd birthday (laughs) i (laughs) want to know but thank you thank you thank you for this oh
0: thank you very much having me it's an absolute pleasure thanks
1: Oh, and I I can't wait to see it in the movies, and I can't wait to read your next book. Um, So everyone, go out and get the book immediately, and I know you're going to want to hear this again. We will be up on an iTunes podcast, More Fun Moments, the show's been taped, so you can hear it again and again and share this with everybody that they need to go get this book. They need to know this story. They need to know the history so it's not repeated. Anita, thank you so much, and I hope we talk soon. And good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, Anita, and we'll talk soon. All right. Good night,
0: everyone. Yeah, very lovely. Thank you.